Christ's resurrection is a certain pledge. It assures us, it guarantees us that he is coming again to transform our lowly body, to be raised like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You're listening to the Holy Joy Sermon Podcast. Visit us at holyjoys.org to find more resources for a holy, happy church. The catechism books in your pew racks are a draft. And one of the things that I want to do in the final copy of those books is to have individual questions about the resurrection, the descent to the dead, the death of Christ on the cross. And this morning, uh, I want to share with you this question on the resurrection and read this responsively and then look at a variety of scriptures that tell us how the resurrection saves and comforts us together. So on your handout this morning, I will read the question and then we'll read the answer together. How does Christ save and comfort us by his resurrection? On the third day, Christ truly rose again from the dead with body and soul to overcome death, declare his lordship, and begin the work of making all things new. Because he lives, we may be raised by his power to a new life, share in the righteousness which he obtained for us by his death, and enjoy the sure pledge that our bodies shall also be raised in glory. Amen. First of all, this morning, Christ truly rose from the dead. There's a lot of people today who believe that the resurrection was a myth or a metaphor. And when people say that the resurrection is a myth, they don't always mean that it's just something that's false, completely uh, devoid of value, like a Greek myth that contains truth, but is not necessarily a real historical event. But the scriptures tell us that the the resurrection of Jesus is more than valuable mythology. It's something that really happened. It's a real historical event. There's others who would say that the resurrection is just a valuable metaphor, a spiritual metaphor for the spiritual resurrection within, but not a real historical event. We read this morning, though, in 1 Corinthians 15, that there were many eyewitnesses who saw and attested to the risen Jesus, that he really arose bodily. And Christ's enemies, who would have wanted to disprove their claims, could have disproved them and put an end to Christianity forever if only they could present his body. But Jesus' enemies were unable to produce his body and to discredit the claims of the eyewitnesses because Jesus truly rose from the dead. It really happened. There's a lot of modern theories that try to disprove the resurrection. A popular theory is the swoon theory, that Jesus appeared to die, but then he resuscitated in the grave. And that is, I think, absurd, given all the details that we have in Scripture and in antiquity about the way that he was put to death and the way that his side was pierced. Another popular theory is that the disciples were so distraught by their failed Messiah that they hallucinated. But the probability of a large group of people having the same hallucination is absurd. And so these modern theories just are are struggling to try to make sense of the overwhelming historical data that Christ truly rose from the dead. 
And there are many things that we are taught in our history classes that have far less historical evidence to verify them than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He truly rose. Second, Christ rose again with body and soul. Yesterday was Holy Saturday, and I passed around to a few people an article on what that means for us. When we recite the Apostles' Creed, we say, He descended to the dead. Jesus' human soul departed to Sheol or Hades, to the place of the dead on Holy Saturday. It's what Charles Wesley meant when he referred to the dark domain. He arose, his human soul arose from the dark domain, the place of the dead, and rejoined his human body in life on Easter Sunday. Jesus appeared to his disciples and he said, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Jesus died a fully human death and he was raised in a fully human resurrection. Touch me and see. In the 39 articles of religion from which uh, Wesleyan's Methodists received their uh, 25 articles, our statement of faith, we read that it was necessary for Christ to rise with flesh, bones, and all things appertaining to the perfection of man's nature. You see, our human nature, our bodies and our souls, were corrupted by sin as a disease. And because Jesus assumed our entire human nature, body and soul, and united it with the medicine of his divine nature, putting it to death and resurrecting it again, our bodies and soul might be completely healed, raised and glorified completely. Third, this morning, Christ arose on the third day. On the third day. You know, this simple fact, this familiar phrase is more significant than we sometimes realize. In fact, we read in 1 Corinthians that Paul taught as a matter of first importance that Christ died and rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. When Paul says that, when Jesus taught the same thing, he means that the resurrection fulfilled a long pattern of third day events. You're not going to find an Old Testament verse that says the Messiah will be raised from the dead on the third day, but you're going to find a long pattern of events in the Old Testament that foreshadow and typologically anticipate Christ's resurrection. You see, it was on the third day that Isaac's life was spared on the mount. And Hebrews 11 says that, figuratively speaking, Isaac was raised from the dead as a type of Christ. It was on the third day that Pharaoh restored the chief cupbearer to his position. It was on the third day that the divine presence was manifested on Mount Sinai, and Christ in his resurrection gave us the great manifestation of his Godhead. It was on the third day that Jonah was raised from the belly of the fish, and Christ said in Matthew 12 that this was a type of his third day resurrection. It was on the third day that God promised to raise up Israel that they might live before him. If you're interested in this, I have an essay, an article on Hosea chapter 6 verses 1 to 2 and how it points forward to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ rose on the third day in fulfillment of the scriptures 
and bringing to completion God's plan from the beginning of time. Fourth, this morning, Christ rose again to overcome death. This is the high note, the victorious note of Easter. I love that song we sang. I love that phrase, he arose a victor from the dark domain. Uh, I had somebody ask me the other Wednesday night, what does it mean when we say in the Apostles' Creed, he descended to the dead? And uh, somebody texted me yesterday from the church and asked me uh, about that more, had questions about that. And uh, that's one of the reasons I passed that article around. Next Sunday, Lord willing, I'm going to preach specifically on the descent of Christ to the dead, what it means that he went down to the dark domain, and what it has to do with his victory over death. But when Christ rose from the dead, he said, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Death died in the death of Christ. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. What Christ did in his cross and resurrection changed the very nature of death. And if you've lost a loved one or you've ever been sick and near death, you know how fearsome death can seem. But Christ did something in his death and resurrection so that Athanasius said that in his day, Christians treated death like a dead lion in the street. When a lion is alive and roaming around in the streets, people bar their doors, they're afraid to go out. Its roar is terrifying, but if it dies, if it falls dead in the street, like Samson who scooped out honey, there's nothing to fear. Athanasius said the children can jump on its back and play with its ears and and laugh about it and mock it. It has no power over us anymore. I think we've lost something in our day. Not that death is not a source of grief and mourning for the Christian. It is. But Paul says we mourn, but not as those who have no hope. It still hurts. It's still hard to lose a loved one. But there's something about the resurrection that if we could just grasp it more fully, it would take from us some of the sting of death even now and fill us with a hope and a longing for that day when death will be put under his feet forever. For for the Christian, death is now the entryway into life with God and into life eternal and unto a glorious resurrection to come. We grieve, but not as those who have no hope. And this morning, if you've lost a loved one who was a true believer in Christ, Jesus extends to you a healing balm. It's not going to take all the hurt away. But as we meditate and reflect and are grateful for the resurrection, and as we grow in our understanding of the resurrection, it is a comfort. It is a comfort that the world does not have. Fifth, this morning, Christ rose again to declare his lordship. I love Romans 14, 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. One of the things that stood out to me on our Good Friday service as we read John 19 was the contrast between Caesar and King Jesus. Anyone pick up on that? The Jews say, we have no king but Caesar. If you don't crucify Jesus, you're no friend of Caesar. You see, in that day, one of the things that uh, the Romans would say in allegiance to Caesar is the words, Caesar is Lord. It was kind of like Heil Hitler. Caesar is Lord. 
And for a Christian to say Jesus is Lord was a countercultural, dangerous political statement. I've shared this illustration before, but Michael Byrd likens it to being a, a German officer and being in, in, uh, in a bar and the one German officer lifts up his glass, Heil Hitler, and you say, I have another toast instead, Heil Jesus. He's the true Fuhrer. I don't think you'd be lasting very long. Jesus rose to declare Caesar isn't the true king. He reclaimed authority over heaven and over earth and under the earth that every knee might bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Praise his name. Sixth, Christ rose again to begin the work of making all things new. This is the one word that I hope you will walk away remembering. Begin. Begin. So many Christians look back to the resurrection as a mere isolated historical event. But in the Bible, the resurrection is always viewed as the beginning of something new. It's like the beginning, the first domino in a chain of dominoes. As the head of the human race, Adam, that first domino, disobeyed God and sent all the other dominoes in the direction of sin and death. But as our new head, as our second Adam, Christ's obedience reversed it. He sent the dominoes back in the direction of justification and life so that Roman 5 says that as through Adam's disobedience all died, through Christ's obedience all shall be made alive. In Genesis 1, we read that God began to create on the first day of the week. And John 20, if you understand John's gospel, which begins with an echo of Genesis, in the beginning was the word, then John's emphasis on the first day resurrection is a sign that God has begun to create again. As God began his work of creation on the first day in Genesis 1, God has begun to create again. The work of new creation has begun in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And our bodies, our souls, and the whole physical universe will be remade, free of sin, death, mourning, crying, and pain. When Mary perceives that Jesus is the gardener, that's not there by mere coincidence. As the second Adam, Jesus was the new gardener. Adam failed in his task of keeping the garden, and corruption came to creation. But Christ, as the new Adam, the new gardener, has come to make all things new. And in the book of Revelation, when he returns, he said, Behold, I am making all things new. What a glorious, glorious hope. Seventh, this morning, because he lives, we may be raised by his power to a new life. You know, when we look around this world, sometimes it looks like we're still so bound in corruption. How much of this work of new creation has already been accomplished? Has the resurrection done what it was supposed to do? But the Bible teaches us that the work of new creation begins in us. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
God begins by remaking us inwardly. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter says, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a day coming when sickness and death and dying will be no more. And we anxiously anticipate that. But our deepest need, our very greatest need, is for inward renewal. That our own souls would be set free from the bondage of sin and spiritual death. And through the resurrection power of Jesus that was unleashed on that Sunday morning, you can be made new. I can be made new. And the only thing that limits his work of recreation in our heart and life is our own stubbornness and sin and unbelief. But if we'll turn ourselves over to him and say, yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way, his will is to make us new. And the transformation, the new creation that we experience in our heart and life, it assures us that he's not going to stop there. He's going to make new our physical bodies and the whole physical universe. We may be raised by his power to a new life. I love Romans 6. You know that. I cite it often. But Paul reminds us there that through baptism, we are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And he says this, these words, these important words, we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This morning, how do you think about yourself? Paul says you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. You know, in our world today, so many people talk about how I'm just a sinner. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And there's some truth in that, but that's not the biblical emphasis. The biblical emphasis is that I'm saved from sin by grace, that I have died to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over me because I have died with Christ and I am alive to God. And if you struggle with sin, one of the first things that you have to do is change the way you think. Holiness begins in the mind, realizing that in Christ we are risen to newness of life eight this morning, because he lives, we may share in the righteousness which he obtained for us by his death. You know, on that cross, we talked about it on Good Friday, Christ provided a full atonement for sin, a full satisfaction for sin. But if Jesus wasn't alive to apply the benefits of that atonement, it would be of no benefit to us. That's why Romans 4.25 says that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. If Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile. It means nothing. And we are still in our sins. But since Christ is risen, we are alive in him, our living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Finally, this morning, Because he lives, we may enjoy the sure pledge that our bodies shall also be raised in glory. In 1 Corinthians 15, that great resurrection chapter, Paul goes on to refer repeatedly to Christ's resurrection as the first fruits. If you've ever grown fruit or crops of any kind, you watch them grow, become ripe, You take one off the branch and you bite into it to see how it tastes. And if you bite into that tomato or that apple and you find it crisp and sweet, 
you know that a great harvest follows. Your eyes, your focus are not merely on that one apple or that one tomato, but on all that is yet to come. And the posture of the Christian in reference to the resurrection of Christ is not primarily backward-looking, but forward-looking. It's anticipatory. It's filled with excitement and hope. Christ's resurrection is the beginning of the resurrection harvest. It's our guarantee that all flesh will be raised from the dead. I think we need to be stirred with just how radical of a claim that is. Have you ever been to Arlington Cemetery? Arlington National Cemetery? Have you ever looked at the sea of graves as far as the eye can see? Nearly 400,000 people buried there. And that's one cemetery. Revelation says that not only the tombs, but even the sea will give up its dead. Every sailor that's been tossed overboard, every soldier that's died in battle, every one of our loved ones will be raised physically in a resurrection as real and physical and fleshly as Christ's own resurrection. Millions upon millions upon billions of bodies. And if Christ is raising up that much physical matter, that much flesh, then will he not also raise the whole physical world and universe? That's what Romans 8 says. It says that creation, the very created order, is groaning like a woman in childbirth. And what is the world looking for? The resurrection of the sons of God. Because creation knows that if we are raised physically, the whole physical world will be raised also. God's promise in the Old Testament that the earth shall never pass away will be fulfilled. His kingdom will be established on this earth and the meek shall inherit the earth, a physical world made new. Christ's resurrection is a certain pledge. It assures us, it guarantees us that he is coming again to transform our lowly body, to be raised like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Adam was supposed to have dominion over all the earth. Adam was supposed to subdue every creature, but he failed. He was subdued by one creature in particular, that old serpent. But Christ is coming to resurrect our physical bodies. And if he does that, he will also subject all things. Every bird, every fish, every beast of the field will submit to the lordship of Christ and bow at his coming. The wicked shall be raised to eternal death, but the righteous shall be raised to eternal life with God in a new heavens and a new earth. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This morning, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We're going to stand together at this time and confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. And one of the reasons why the church throughout history has recited its faith aloud every week is because of this very verse, Romans 10, 9. It's an opportunity for you to say these words, to confess these words, not just words on a page, but from your heart. And as you join your heart in confession, this is a saving act. And so this morning, let us confess our faith that Christ came for us and our salvation. He conquered death, sin, and the grave. 
and he lives to make us Thank you for listening to the Holy Joy Sermon Podcast. Our labors for a holy, happy church are supported by generous listeners like you. Please pray about partnering with us at holyjoys.org forward slash donate.